Welcome to Mentions in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 25th of September and this is episode number 33. This week's interview is on the Spanish flu pandemic. My interviewee is historian Dr Jane Orr. Jane is a GP by profession and regular speaker at WFA branches. She works closely with her husband Michael Orr, who also appeared on the podcast, giving a lecture on the Honourable Artillery Company. I spoke to Jane over the information superhighway from her home in Surrey. Jane, welcome to the show. I wonder whether you could start by giving us a brief introduction to your background, interests and involvement with the Great War. Well, I'm a recently retired GP, um, but shortly after I qualified over 40 years ago, I joined the regular army. I was in the RAMC for six years on a short service commission. And my first posting was as cadets medical officer to Sandhurst. Obviously there I met lots of military historians. I married one of them, Michael Law, who is a WFA speaker. But a lot of what he does is um, take leading battlefield tours. And so whenever I could get my holidays to coincide with a battlefield tour, I would go along with him as tour manager. But often he would ask me to do a medical stand. Um, and then one year we were going to Etarque. So I don't know if you know the cemetery there, 11,500 graves of whom over 7,000 are Spanish flu victims. So it's quite sobering to stand there. And he asked me to do five minutes on the Spanish flu. Having started looking at it, I realised that um, five minutes was embarrassingly short and you couldn't really say anything in that time. So I've been looking at it since then. Now, one interesting thing is why is it called the Spanish flu? Well, mainly because Spain were not involved in the war. Um, If you think about it, the rest of Europe were busy fighting. They couldn't, they didn't want to let on that they had troops ill with flu because that would be giving information to the enemy. So they kept quiet about it. The Spanish press, who'd had nothing to write about for four years except how the rest of Europe were busy killing each other, suddenly had something new to write about. They could write about the nasty flu epidemic. They actually call it the French flu because it came to them over the Pyrenees. Spain didn't have it any worse than anyone else, and they were actually quite late on in getting it. But because their press could then write about it, the British press, French press, American press, German press, could report that there was a nasty flu epidemic in Spain. So when Mrs. Miggins goes down with her flu and calls the doctor in, the doctor would say, oh, you must have that Spanish flu that everyone's talking about. And so that's why Spain got numbered with it. If they'd been fighting, they they wouldn't, they wouldn't have um, been labelled with the flu. Well, where did this pandemic come from and what was its scale in terms of mortality across the world? It was enormous. It's No one has quite proved exactly what happens, but one model worked better than anything, anything else. And in fact, what it was was a mutation of two totally different bugs. We actually have to go back to the autumn of 1916, when in Vienna there was an epidemic of what they called purulent bronchitis. Nobody could work out what it was, but 24,000 young people in their 20s and 30s 
died of this in Vienna over the winter. And it started with flu-like symptoms and then people got this horrendous reaction in their lungs where they bled into their lungs and essentially died of drowning in their own blood. Nobody could work out what it was. It was some research has done. Unfortunately, no tissues have been kept. So we don't we don't know exactly what it was. But anyone who got over it didn't go down with the Spanish flu, which by definition didn't start till um, 1918. Anyway, this bug, which I will call the Austrian flu, was not terribly, and it was quite infectious, but it didn't spread like wildfire. But it, some of the uh, British soldiers got it. And it was around the whole of that winter of 16, 17, people getting it. Then it seemed to die out. Then it came back again in the winter of 17, 18. And so it was sort of bubbling on. And then, so put that on one side, totally separate, March 1918, in America, in Camp Funston in Kansas, there was suddenly an epidemic of a completely different sort of flu, a swine flu. This was the start of what is now called the first wave of the Spanish flu. It ripped through the, the camp at um, in Kansas. The story is that some pigs had been ill and were destroyed near the camp and the, and the carcasses burnt and within 40 the smoke went over the camp and within 48 hours people were going down with it now this flu was not terrible it was what we would call an ordinary flu people were feeling unwell for one or two weeks it was very infectious lots and lots of people got it but after two or three weeks they got better obviously starting with recruits it rapidly came over to Europe on the transport bringing American troops over spread through Europe through our forces and the German forces and was a real problem because a lot of people were getting ill. We've got the figures from the British Expeditionary Force. In the worst week, which was the end of June, beginning of July 1918, 46,275 were unable to fight, signed off sick, if you like. I mean, obviously you weren't signed off sick in the middle of the war, but unable to function, (laughs) going through the medical system. 46,275 in one week. The weeks on either side were not much better. That is an awful lot of soldiers. But the death rate was about 20... 25 a week so significant for them and their families but not significant with the numbers um, involved that was dying out and I think if it had stuck to that no one would have thought um, anything of it just about over by August but then somewhere around the end of August early September something happened the postulation is that somebody don't know what nationality but it was probably in a tarp where there were an awful lot of people soldiers of an awful lot of nationalities and sailors somebody managed to get the Austrian flu and the American swine flu, known as as the Spanish flu, managed to get both at the same time and the bug mutated into something completely different. And then we had the second wave, which was the really deadly wave. So it had the very high mortality, about 10% of the people who got it died of it with this horrible um, hemorrhage. It was not quite as, it wasn't as infectious as the first wave, thank goodness, um, but it was still quite infectious enough. So to compare, the worst week of that was the first week of November of 1918, and in the BEF they had 11,300 cases, so 
a quarter of the number of cases of the uh, the first wave, but the deaths were over a thousand a week. So you know, we we are talking something really really nasty. And of course, it spread after the, that second wave was dying out by the end of December, early January 1919. But then, unfortunately, some returning Russian soldiers heading off for eastern Siberia, which had avoided the second wave, they managed to pass the bug on to a population that hadn't come across it before. And the third wave then swept back across Europe and America and Africa and Asia and for the first time into Australia. And that's the third wave, which caused about a quarter, about three quarters of the deaths were the second wave, about a quarter were the third wave. And um, But obviously it varied from country to country, which was the worst. Australia, as I said, had put up a quarantine and managed to avoid <laughs> the first and second wave. But then it's January, February 1919, the war's over, everyone relaxes, they relax of quarantine and get badly hit by the third wave. So the overall across the world, we'll never know the figures for China and Russia, but somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died, somewhere between three and five percent of the world's population. We know that over 17 million died in India, which has biggest recorded loss. In UK, we lost a quarter of a million, of whom 180,000 died in a, the three-month period of the... Um, um, of the uh, uh, this is in UK. This isn't counting the soldiers dying of it in, 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 in France. This is, this is in, in UK. Countries that were not as, as well um, industrialised were much more open. Samoa, lost 20% of its population. In Tahiti, 30% of the adult men and 22% of the adult women died of the disease, all in about a three-month period. It was it was enormous um, and and it was horrible. And and it's we're just coming up to its uh, its centenary. So if I contracted Spanish flu, what would be the symptoms and how would I possibly be treated, if at all? Well, the um, the symptoms would all start with ordinary flu-like symptoms: temperature, headache, aching muscles, and three quarters of people. That is all would happen but around a quarter would get this very severe immune reaction which caused such strong inflammation that you bled into you bled into your muscles which made coughing really painful you bled into your stomach couldn't eat anything vomited up blood but the worst was the bleeding into the lungs which if you got it really badly you died of drowning in in your own blood treatment was very limited there was just things like aspirin to try and keep your temperature down that was around but that was about it and they could give oxygen to try and get people through the medical the medics didn't were, were terribly blase about the first wave wondered what everyone was fussing about but obviously took the second wave um, really seriously and the medical research council established in 19 um, September of 1918 a flu research laboratory in Abbeville in northern northern France manned by RAMC personnel no, but it was funded by the MRC, who not only sent over the test tubes, pumps and burners and special filters that were needed, but, um, uh, but also 24 rhesus monkeys, 10 baboons and about 100 white mice. Now, I think this is amazing. We are talking September 1918. 
there were one or two things happening in northern France then. There was an awful lot of stuff needing to go across the channel. Tanks, men, munitions, vehicles, you know, (laughs) you work out what was needed. And yet the flu was taken seriously enough that they were also able to get over rhesus monkeys, baboons and white mice. I, I think it blows my mind, really. What they understood, they knew it was a virus. Nobody knew what a virus looked like, but they knew what bacteria looked like because they had optical microscopes and they knew it wasn't a bacteria. Therefore, they postulated viruses. And what they were doing in, in the research laboratory was filtering the serum of people suffering from it with a special filter that uh, Louis Pasteur devised that takes all bacteria out, injecting that into the monkeys, making them ill, and then proving at post-mortem on the monkeys that they were suffering from the same thing. But they were also trying to develop immunization, getting inoculations against um, viruses, and bacteria was what an awful lot of the work of the um, Medical Research Council during the war was was doing. Unfortunately, they never uh, they were getting close to it when the person running the um, running the laboratory, Major Graham Gibson, unfortunately succumbed to the Spanish flu at the beginning of the third wave. And with his death, obviously it was 1919, the war was over. This was all RAMC personnel. They wanted to be demobilised and go home. And and all that research got rather lost, which was which was sad. But they did have an understanding, but they didn't have any truth. So obviously there's been a big debate amongst historians about what impact the flu had on the war and what impact the war had on the flu. Taking, taking the first one, what impact did the war have on the flu? There is no doubt at all that the, um, that the war made it much, much worse. We managed to transport massive numbers of susceptible individuals all over the world in very cramped communal conditions. And on the Western Front, we weakened people's lungs with gas and and, and so, you know, we created this very susceptible population and did what we could to expose them to massive amount of the virus. And the other point is that in in peacetime, if you get flu mildly, you may well stagger on and go into work and spread your mild virus about. But if you got it badly, you then um, you then stay at home and infect much fewer people. Now, in a war situation, it's the opposite way round. If you have it mildly, you stay where you are with your section and you might infect them, but it's still you know, not huge numbers. Whereas if you're really ill, you then have to go back down the Kazivak chain so you infect the stretcher bearers, um, you infect the ambulance drivers, you then might go on to a, a cramped, overcrowded ambulance train where you will be infecting some of the wounded soldiers who are on it as well. You then go back to the field hospitals, general hospitals, and infect an awful lot of people on the way. One of the things going around a lot of military cemeteries, I always look for RAMC personnel, and you always find a much higher proportion than you would expect from October, November, December 1918. And I'm sure a lot of those were flu. So it, so there's the double, double whammy there. As far as the other, the other thing, the effect of, 
um, the flu on the war. It's really quite hard to calculate because governments have played down the role of disease a lot. The US Senate um, prov produced an official report on the cost of the war in 1919, and it worked out the cost to the nation of the deaths of the 50,000 men who died in action, but completely ignored the deaths of 57,000 men who succumbed to flu. Now, the Americans were the only people in the war who lost more um, from disease than battle casualties. We always learn the First World War was the first war where pe more people died of, of of the war rather than, than disease. And certainly as far as um, the rest of the countries who started the war rather earlier, that was true. But so in, in France, I mean, with their huge number of deaths, one in six of, of their deaths um, were were flu rather than um, rather than battle casualties. As far as we're concerned, it's about one in ten. To go back to the Americans, the, their 88th division. I'm not very good on this, but this is just facts <laughs> I have been given. Their total killed, wounded, and captured were 90 people. Their total deaths from flu, 444. Now, <laughs> you know, that I think puts it all into context. But if you look at their battle on, you know, their list of dead, they will only list the people who were killed in the war, and they won't list any of the flus. The second wave was so bad that um, in the state they cancelled all the draft calls after the 11th of October 1918, really to stop getting all the recruits together and creating this this focus of infection. Now, admittedly, this was after the first notices had been sent requesting peace negotiations. Negotiations, but General Pershing the week before had been promised 90,000 troops, but he only got less than half of that because of them cancelling the draft. And on the German side, in many ways, it was the first wave that affected them badly. Because if you're trying to fight a war, a high sickness rate is actually worse than a high death rate. Dead people you can just leave and ignore. The sick people you have to do something with. Now, he's obviously General um, von Ludendorff is well known for making excuses. But the fact is that between March and July 1918, three quarters of a million Germans were wounded, one and three quarter million caught flu. And he is quoted in June 1918, moaning that 2,000 men in each division are suffering from influenza. The supply chain, the supply system is breaking down. The troops are underfed. Now, you know, this is all part of his excuse on the failure of the spring offensive. But who knows, if it hadn't been for the Spanish flu, maybe his spring offensive would have succeeded. Maybe the, you know, the Germans would have really advanced then and, you know, got into Paris and, um, you know, we don't know. We cannot tell. That was certainly his excuse. And some people feel that it's telling that um, the push to negotiate an armistice came at the height of the second wave when so many people were dying and the people who survived were all getting depressed. And, you know, not that Adolf Hitler was in any position to be doing anything then, but he was a survivor of the Spanish flu. And in some of his writing, he sort of talked about the awful depression that came on after it. So, did the flu bring the war to an end? We will never know. But one thing we do know is that the Spanish flu is very rarely talked about, especially especially in relative terms to Passchendaele, the Somme, etc. Why do you think that is, given it was so much more deadly 
I mean, I think it is purely embarrassment. I mean, it's, I don't know about you, but at school, I learned that the, the Spanish flu happened after the war, and certainly the third wave did happen after the war. But the most deadly part was was in October and, and November of 1918, so partly after the war, but, but, but an awful, awful lot during it. And I just think people were in The troops had suffered so much, you know, people dying, you know, horrible deaths from being so badly wounded. And to moan about flu was just not the thing to, to do. As I say, the Americans ignore, ignore it amongst their military tremendously. I think now with the centenary coming up and with recent panics about various swine flus and bird flus, people have been looking back to see if there is anything that we can learn. But it was such a special time. But, you know, for years, really until the last 20 years, it was, was totally ignored. And I think it was pure embarrassment. The war was to let's concentrate on the war that sacrifices people made and you know and, and something that you was totally out of control that was more an act of god i think people just weren't prepared to, to take on and even think about so that it, it was just put to one side jane thank you very much for your time you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS21. Until next time.